You are listening to the podcast of New Life Church in Wayland, Michigan. Our longing is to see zero people in our community living unchanged by Jesus. We are a church navigating the messiness of life together in community. One of our core convictions is that everyone is welcome, no one is perfect, and anything is possible. I hope you know there is a place in the family for you here. For more information on gathering times and location, check out our website. But for now, I hope God speaks powerfully to you through this word. Well, good morning, New Life Church. How are we doing this morning? Good. I, uh, I just got back from camp on Friday as well. I was one of the adult leaders. And hey, how are you, Alex? Good to see you, man. And uh, Josh put me with a group of nine middle school boys because he loves me. And night one, we couldn't even have a conversation because of all the belching and farting. But by night four... There was no less belching and farting, but there was a group of middle school guys who were praying for each other and burdened about friends of theirs who are far from God and some really, really cool, powerful things, others feeling a calling into full-time ministry. And so we just celebrate what God did that week and just want to thank Josh. Actually, can we just say thank you to Josh for all of his work and preparing for that? So today we're in week four, I think, of a series that we're working through this summer called Kingdom Culture, where we're looking at the parables of Jesus. And a couple years ago, I had the opportunity to head out west and go camping in Sequoia National Park in Central California. Has anyone ever been out to that area before? Just absolutely stunning out there. And Sequoia trees Man, they are some of the largest trees in the world. You've probably seen pictures of those trees that have car tunnels and roads carved out of them. Like, those are sequoia trees. In fact, this picture here is, is me in front of the world's largest tree by volume. It's called the General Sherman. It's 275 feet tall. Just think about that for a minute. At the base, it has a diameter, so straight across, of 36 feet and a circumference around it of 102 feet. Sequoias can live for up to 3,000 years. I mean, just insane beasts of trees. And as I was kind of driving through and looking at all of the different sequoias in this national forest, I began to notice something, and, and you can see the picture on the right there, that almost all of them had these giant burn scars on them these giant burn marks. And as I was driving through, I thought, man, this forest must have at one point been ravaged by forest fires, just absolutely decimated by forest fires because so many of these trees had these these giant burn marks on them. But then as I began digging and reading some of the brochures they give you and, and, you know, exploring a little bit more, I began to realize forest rangers used to think the same thing. And so what they would do is they would protect the trees from the fires at all costs. And and make no mistake about it, forest fires can destroy sequoia trees. But what they began to realize in all of this protection from the fire was that these trees in the midst of that actually stopped growing. They stopped reproducing. They stopped maturing when they were completely shielded off and protected from the fire. In fact, sequoias that are not exposed to fire will not grow, mature, or thrive. 
And the reason being is because the fire does a couple things. Number one, it opens up the super thick canopy of leaves at the top of the forest to allow sunlight and rain and nutrients in. The heat of the fire opens up the cones that hang on the sequoia trees to allow new seeds to fall. The fire also burns up the leaves on the forest floor so that new seedlings can be planted in the soil and start to grow. The fire is actually necessary for the growth and the maturity of the sequoia tree. And this is true for people when it comes to our spiritual growth as well. You see, so many of us, we've built our lives around avoiding the fire at all costs. Avoiding the pain, avoiding the hardship, avoiding the suffering, even avoiding evil at all costs. And we wonder why our faith is so fragile. See, we experience pain and we assume God is distant. We see evil and our first question is, God, why are you so indifferent? But what if God can actually use the fire of hardship and pain and even evil to move us from a place of just abstract knowledge about him to a place of personal encounter with him? See, this is what I'm absolutely convinced of, that even as evil flourishes around you, God can still cultivate really good things in you. Even as evil flourishes around you, God still desires to cultivate really good things in you. Now, I get it. This is the sermon no one wants to hear. <laughs> I was like to my wife earlier this week, can I, or yesterday, can I walk you through this sermon? This is what it's about. She goes, nope, I'm good. I'll catch you tomorrow. Great. Thanks, babe. But we live in a world where the fire is unavoidable, don't we? 100% of people who live on this earth will experience pain, will experience hardship, will experience evil even. And, and the question for us is, will we be the type of people that are destroyed by the fire? Or will we allow God to grow some really good things in the midst of it? And so what I want to do is take a look at a powerful parable where Jesus asks us to actually identify which type of people that we will be. He asks us to identify which type of church we'll be. So if you have your Bibles with you, open with me to Matthew chapter 13. And Matthew 13 is actually a passage where a bunch of parables are found, but we're going to be looking at one of them in the midst of this kind of string of parables that Jesus tells. And he is speaking to the crowds of people that are following when he says this. And he says this, he put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed seeds among the wheat and went away. So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared also. And the servants of the master of the house came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have weeds all over the place? He said to them, a gluten-free extremist has done this. <laughs> Kidding. <laughs> An enemy has done this. So the servant said to him, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said, no, lest in gathering the weeds, you root up the wheat along with them. Let both grow together until the harvest, and at harvest time I will tell the reapers, gather the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. So let's walk through and dissect this story together, because it's a, it's a really powerful one if we understand what Jesus is getting at here. 
First and foremost, Jesus starts with this master, this, this farmer. And he'll tell us a little bit later on that this farmer actually represents him. It's the son of man, God here in the flesh among us. And what it says about this farmer is that it says this farmer sows good seed in his field. And this is a principle that is easy to overlook, but so incredibly important to understand. That the farmer, the farmer only sows good seed. The farmer intends good. He plans for good. He desires good. He goes out and buys good seed. But he doesn't just desire good, he actually plants good. He scatters good seed. Just good, good, good all over the place. Even as I was reading this, I was thinking back to even Genesis 1 as as God is creating. And what does it say over and over about God's creation? It's good. It's good. It's very good. See, this farmer who represents God only produces good, only produces good. His seed that he spreads and plants is good seed. It is fully, abundantly good. The only things God ever produces are good. Goodness originates with God. It emanates from God. It also means he gets to define goodness for us. This is so important for you to remember that God never stops producing good. Never. Even when evil is flourishing around you, God still desires, his longing is still to produce good things in you. He gave us free will. Like if you ever wonder why there's so much evil in the world, like didn't even God create Satan? Yeah, but he gave free will to good, holy creatures which is also evidence of his goodness. That in his love and his grace and his mercy, he's given us the ability to fully accept him or fully reject him because he loves us that much. He only produces good. But then something happens in this field. Something happens. An enemy comes like a thief in the night or like a serpent in a garden and plants bad among the good. He comes in and he plants a weed. And the English translations of this passage just use a general term, weeds, or maybe you have a translation that says tares in it. But in the Greek, this is a very specific type of weed. And it's a weed called zizania. Zizania. Can you say that out loud? Zizania. There we go. That's a fun word, isn't it? And zizania is a pesky, pesky little weed. Because what happens is when the the workers first come out, they see the plot of dirt. And if you know anything about wheat, it it looks like grass initially when it's coming up. It's it's green. And and I can imagine these these workers, these hired hands, going out into this plot of dirt, and they see a full field of just grass-like plants starting to come up. And they begin thinking to themselves, man, this is a bountiful harvest, The crops are way more tightly packed in than we had planted. Could this be a miracle? I mean, look at all of this wheat that's starting to emerge from the soil. But then they realize as the season passes and as the crops mature that this is a miracle, but it's a miracle of the worst kind. 
Because what they begin to learn is that as these plants mature, some of them are producing crops, some of them have wheat on the top of the stalk, and others that look identical to the wheat produce absolutely nothing. In fact, they only take. They steal the nutrients from the wheat. They look exactly like the wheat, but they don't produce any crop. They don't produce anything. Guys, Jesus consistently said that the marker that his disciples will be known by is what kind of crop or fruit is what he says in other places that comes out of our lives. That you can fake following Jesus all day long. But there is a process that every single one of us goes through that as we grow up, as we're raised up in this world, that we can look the same. Wheat and weeds can look identical to each other, but it's only after gone through a season and some trial and some hardship where we begin to emerge which is actually wheat and which is actually weeds in our lives. See, disciples are known by our crop, by our fruit, that even as evil flourishes, weeds flourish around wheat. Wheat can still thrive. It can still produce good crops. So in the New Testament, the most consistently said thing about disciples of Jesus is that we produce fruit, we produce crop. What is this fruit Jesus consistently talks about? It's the fruit of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. And yet so many of us, we've resisted trial and hardship in a way that has actually not allowed us to be matured spiritually by God. For so many of us, we're in a place where our faith is so incredibly immature. It's like baby little grass coming out of the soil, and it's not quite clear whether or not it's wheat that's growing or it's weeds that's growing. I want to walk you through a specific example of how this can play itself out in someone's life. There's an ancient church father, his name is Bernard of Clairvaux, and he talked about one of these fruits growing up in someone's life. He talks about the fruit of love growing up in someone's life. And he says, every single one of us start with a very, very, very immature version of love, right? This is the point where the wheat and the weeds haven't even emerged out of the soil yet. And he describes this type of extremely primitive love like this, that I'll love me for me. I'll love me for me. Now, ironically, our culture calls this the highest form of love. Our culture says that self-actualization or loving me for me is the most matured version of love, but Scripture says the exact opposite, that loving me for me isn't actually love at all. All of us start in this place where all of our motives, they're, they're selfish. Our actions are selfish. It's a very, very immature version. But then something happens in our lives. God does something. God gets something, gets a hold of something in our lives, and something beautiful starts to emerge. And even in this place, the crop begins to come out of the ground, out of the soil, and it still looks like grass at this point. And we move into a level two type of maturity. And it's this, that I'll love God for me. I'll love God for me. No, I love people who are in this stage. If I'm honest, I think a lot of people in our church are in this stage, that I'll love God for me. We experienced this stage a lot even at camp this last week. 
here's what this stage often looks like. That I'll go to a, a place like NTS camp, and I'll have a mountaintop experience where God moves radically in my life, and he makes me feel things I've never felt before. I have emotions that have never stirred in me before, I, and it feels good, and I like it, and I want more of it, and it's good stuff cultivating in my life, but then the second I go home, I, I come back down from the mountaintop, and I go back into real life where it's boring, or it's hard, or there's trials, or there's challenges, and a love of God that's just based on me and my feelings, the emotional highs, it's a beautiful faith, but it's not a sustainable faith. It's a beautiful place to start, but even in level two, there are still wheat and weeds growing side by side with each other. Can I just say, I guarantee you that we've baptized some weeds here in this church. And that's a hard thing to hear, but Jesus even had disciples who were weeds. Like if this is the place where we stop, that God, my love for you is just based on what you do for me or my circumstances or my situation or how you make me feel, then I actually am completely stunted in my growth and don't actually mature into what you have for me. Which leads us to the third level of growth in our lives, spiritual maturity, which is where I begin to learn to love God for God. See, learning to love God for God is a faith that's been tried by some fire. It's a faith that says, I can worship you even when I don't like the song Trent chose to worship you with. Because it's not based on how it makes me feel. I like the songs Trent chooses, and I'm not bashing on Trent, but my worship is not based on how a song makes me feel. It's based on the one to whom my worship is focused on. It means that trials and tribulations and hardships and unanswered questions are not met with this place of, God, I'm going to stop trusting you because I don't understand what you're doing right now. No, God, I love you for you. You are the prize. You are the object of my affection. That even in the midst of adversity, I will still proclaim your kingdom. Even in the midst of weeds growing all around, I will not stop being faithful to you, Lord. That I will trust you in the uncertainty because I believe your promises are sure I will trust you in the process. So I have situations in my life, probably like you do right now, where it's really hard to see the good among the bad. And I've asked God why in different situations in my life more times than I can count. But a faith that is maturing is one that rests on his promises. One that clings tight to him in the midst of weeds growing all around. You do not have to look far to see evil flourishing in the world. But what if God, in the midst of a season where evil seems to be winning, wants to cultivate really good things inside of you in the meantime? And so the field workers, they go to their master when the weeds grow, and they ask him the same exact question many of us ask God when things don't seem to be as they ought to be when evil seems to be winning, they ask God this, didn't you plant good seeds? Why are there weeds? It's interesting that they ask the master why bad things are happening in his field. And ironically, this is the same exact question the Jewish people were asking God as well. 
You see, when Jesus came on the scene, God had been silent for 400 years. He had not spoken to his people. And so all they had to cling to were these promises that a Messiah, a deliverer of Israel, would come. And when Jesus arrives on the scene, they're like, God, how long will we have to wait for you to move? How long are you going to remain silent? How long do we have to live under the boot of Rome and experience this excessive taxation? And why is food and land and everything so scarce? God, how long will you stay silent? God, why are you allowing this to happen? I thought you planted good seeds in the world. Why did I have to lose my spouse? Why did you cause my kid to run away again? what are you doing? And we see all of the bad in the world. We see the bad in our own lives. And we bring hard questions to God and say, didn't you promise to bring good out of the bad? Why does the fire of affliction and pain burn so bright? Are you a promise breaker or just not as powerful as you claim to be? And what the farmer does is he graciously explains that he produces good, that he plants good seed, and that an enemy of your soul, an enemy of the field, an enemy of this world has come in and planted bad among the good. And for a season and for a time, the farmer is allowing the bad and the good to grow side by side with each other. And the natural question that we ask him is, why? Why? Why are you so slow, God? Why can't you just snap your fingers and eradicate all evil and suffering from the world? And you know what the farmer says back to his workers when they ask this question? He says, if I prematurely pull up the evil and the weeds, I'm going to pull up the good stuff as well before it's fully matured. I'm going to pull up the wheat in the process. If I just instantly eradicate all evil from the world, I'm going to pull up what's good and what I'm doing in the world as well. Let me put it this way. You cannot go to God and ask him to eradicate genocide in the world and not also go to him and ask him to eradicate the evil that lives inside your own mind, your own heart. It's interesting, I, and I'm just, I wasn't going to say this, but I'm going to because I was with students all week and I'm feeling bold. Um, <laughs> some of you are more angry at Bud Light right now than you are at the way drinking is destroying your own family. You cannot go to God and say eradicate evil in the world without inviting him to do the same thing in your own heart. 2 Peter 3.9 says this, says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promise. He's not really slow as, as we may think he's slow. No, he is being patient for your sake and for my sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to have a chance to repent. What if the reason God seems to be slow in our lives is because there are people in your life and there is stuff in you that he still wants to cultivate, that he still wants to work on, that he still wants to grow. 
In other words, good things in our lives and in our character can be cultivated as evil flourishes around us, and some days it feels like the weeds are winning. Does anybody else feel like that in the world we live in? Some days it feels like the weeds are winning. Nobody knew this better than Jesus himself. Nobody knew this feeling better than Jesus himself. See, after he's done telling this parable to the crowds, he pulls his disciples aside, kind of him and his his main crew, his main squad, and he explains to them what this parable actually means. Reading on in verse 27, he says this. Nope, sorry, that's the wrong one. Um, I wrote the wrong one in my notes. I think the right one's up there. Um, Let's see here. Verse 36, my apologies. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man, right? So that's him. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. So this is stuff we've all walked through already in this teaching. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping, gnashing of teeth, then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. Guys, Jesus believed that hell was real and final and eternal. Because that is what's at stake in your life and in mine, God is allowing wheat and weeds to grow side by side for a season so that none would perish. It's his desire. His desire is zero people unchanged by Jesus. That is his heartbeat. That is his longing. You see, Jesus knew the meaning of this parable better than anybody else because he who came to announce the kingdom of God, who was himself the king of this kingdom, is confronted at every turn with fire, with spiritual evil, with wickedness, violence, injustice, and death. This stuff seemed to reign supreme in the world that Jesus lived in. I would argue probably even more than what it feels like it reigns supreme in our world today. And he is explaining this parable to a group of guys who in a short time will be sent out like sheep among wolves. These guys will experience arrest, imprisonment, torture, burning, hanging, crucifying, all for for proclaiming that this new kingdom is here. He's not speaking to a group of people who have it easy. He's speaking to a group of people who will experience evil firsthand in their lives. And yet in the midst of that, what he's doing is he's giving us a model for how to endure in the midst of it. How to not fall away. How to not be weeds. How do we do it? We patiently abide in Christ, trusting that he is at work to separate. That he is at work to be faithful to his promises 
that he is actively able to bring good out of the bad, even when we cannot see it. About a month ago, um, our lawnmower broke down, which is always a fun thing. We have a zero-turn mower and live on two acres. And we did not realize that the lawnmower was broken down until it was time to mow the lawn. And so, and we probably let our lawn go more than it should before we mow it. Anybody else in that camp? Wow, I feel alone. Okay, start counseling this week. So our, our lawnmower broke down. And uh, I'm beginning to see our lawn grow. And it's like, oh, shoot, we had somebody come over and look at it. We couldn't quite figure it out. So we made an appointment with somewhere. And it was going to be about two weeks before the lawnmower could be fixed. And so here I am sitting on my front porch. And I'm just watching this grass grow. And I'm watching weeds grow like, well, like weeds, right? And so it's just getting longer and longer. And I began to think to myself, man, what should I do about this situation? And so the, the extremes came into my mind, right? On one hand, I'm like, I still have a weed whacker that works. I could just go out and weed whack two acres of lawn, right? That would take about 12 weeks to do. And it'd be messy and uneven and kind of gross and extremely insufficient. So that wasn't a good option. And then the other option, I thought to myself, well, I wonder how long this will actually get over the next two weeks. Maybe I can just sit back and do absolutely nothing and just let it grow and let it go and hopefully it won't be too bad when it's time to actually come mow. See, both of these were horrible solutions both of them. Because on one hand, I mean, the, the weed-whacking hack job, that's obviously not sustainable, and the just passive sitting back and letting it just kind of do its thing is also not a good option. And yet, as I think about that, that's so often how I see Christians wanting to engage with evil in the world. On one hand, we see evil out there, and we just want to take a weed-whacker to all of it. We just want to weed whack it all and do our, our best hack job that we can. And we live in this world of impatient outrage that just has to have the last word on every single thing. And so we just let people have it on social media. It's a hasty reactionary post to put them in their place. It looks like a constant anxiety that's ready to explode when the world doesn't tiptoe around our own triggers. It's simply not the way of Jesus. In fact, Jesus lived in a world among disciples who just wanted to weed whack all the evil in the world. It's the same principle here in the parable. The, the, the workers come to the, the farmer and they say, should we just pull it all up right now? Like, essentially, should we just weed whack it? Think about Jesus' own disciples. He had one named Simon who was a zealot, who belonged to a political party whose only goal was to violently overthrow the Roman occupation. They wanted to wee-whack all the evil in the world as quickly and in, as efficiently as possible. And then he had Peter, who in the middle of the garden, the Gethsemane, when Jesus is being arrested, what does Peter do? Takes out his sword and literally begins weed-whacking ears off. <laughs> right? And Jesus, what does he do? He picks it up. He heals the ear of his enemy. Because Jesus understood what it meant to abide in his Father. That Jesus believed that even in the midst of evil, even in the midst of the evil of the cross, God was birthing good things and new things in his people as a result. But then you have the other extreme. 
You have the other extreme where you see people exposed to evil in the world who are trying to follow Jesus, and all they want to do is just passively sit back and do nothing. That's also not the way of the world, the way of Jesus. Like when you see evil in the world or when you're hurt by somebody, is your tendency to isolate and separate when you experience pain? Does your passive apathy look like binging on a substance to numb what's out there? Have you become indifferent about things that God has clearly called sin in his word? It's just easier to be passive about it. Jesus trusted his father enough to let wheat and weeds grow side by side. He was neither a slave to inpatient outrage, nor was he a slave to passive apathy. He taught us how to patiently abide in him. Because as fire and evil rage around you, God still desires to grow good things within you. And so what do we do? We patiently abide. We patiently abide. We proclaim the kingdom of God even when it feels adverse. Even when it feels dangerous. And we also love our enemies. And we serve people. We serve people like nobody else can serve people because the Son of Man came not to be served but to serve. We patiently abide by hoping in faith in the darkness before the dawn that God is still working even when we cannot see him. We wait on God in uncertainty and we say, how long, O Lord? How long? But we use that question to drive us closer to him, not to pull us away from him. See, the proof that Jesus still can bring evil, or still can bring good out of evil, is at the cross. What I want to do is, as we close here this morning is I want to invite the band back up. And I just want to bring you in our closing to these final moments that Jesus had with his disciples. Setting the scene here, it's Thursday night. He's about to be arrested in just a few hours and brought to the cross. And what he does is he reclines at a table with his 12 disciples, surrounded by people who are wheat. He actually says to them, there is a weed among us, someone who has betrayed me, someone who has betrayed me for his own advantage when the fires of affliction are at hand. Even Jesus had weeds among wheat. Many, he said, will fall away. But then in the midst of this fire, he points us to hope. And I want to draw your attention as we close to Matthew 26. Matthew 26, verse 25, where he institutes this thing called the Lord's Supper. And Judas, who is the weed, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? Is it I who would betray you? And Jesus said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink, all, drink of it all of you for this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day 
when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Communion is one of the ways that we choose to patiently abide as wheat and weeds are growing side by side with each other. Communion is a reminder that even when it feels like evil is winning, evil is flourishing, that God still desires to bring good things up in us. That God still desires to transform. That God still desires to point us to the very place where he ultimately brought good out of evil, which is his cross. And I promise you, I promise you, the disciples did not see that at the time. We know this because they ran and they hid and they you know, had their um, impatient outrage and their passive apathy and it was fear and, and trembling and they just could not see the goodness of God in the midst of all the evil. And I want to remind you that on the third day, Jesus came bursting out of the grave into a new creation. And what we have to hold on to while we and weeds are still growing together is that he is still birthing new life even today. New life out of our situation, new life out of the things that we don't understand, new life in the midst of our questions. But that's what he does. That weeds are not eternal reality for those who are in Christ. Evil is not eternal reality for those who are in Christ. He will one day separate out those who are in Christ, those who have produced fruit and crop, those who have matured in him from those who have fallen away. The question for us here this morning is which one will we be? Which one will we be? I'm going to pray for us, and then as we sing this final song, I want to just invite you to come to the tables. There's two in the front here, and and there's one in the back. And just partake in this meal as we remember the one who has the ability to grow good things in us, even as evil flourishes around us. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are a good farmer. God, we thank you for the good that you have put out into this world. God, we believe you and we trust you that you put good things and only good things out there. And so God, in the midst of it, we invite you to define good in our lives even when we don't understand it. We invite you, we trust you when we don't see the good in our lives. We don't love you for how you make us feel or even just solely for what you do for us. We love you because of who you are. We love you because you are faithful, because of your character, because you love, because you are a promise keeper. And so God, where there are areas in our lives today where we are prone to forget that promise, prone to forget that you are still in the business of bringing good things even out of evil, when we cannot see that, we cling to the cross. We hope in the cross. We remember what you've done on the cross for us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen.